Welcome to the J&J Podcast, the long-awaited return. This week, we have a special episode on Peer Review Week 2023, and I have the pleasure of introducing a special guest, the APS, which is the American Physiological Society, Associate Publications Director, Editorial and Content Development, Kara Hansel-Kehan. We'll be discussing some of the past, present, and future of peer review in scholarly publishing. On to the podcast. Well, hey, Kara, and thank you so much for joining me on the J&J podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Hi, Wyatt. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Of course, of course. So uh, I gave them a little brief overview, I guess, in our introduction. But how about you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do? I'd be happy to. So I work for the American Physiological Society in our publications division, and I oversee our editorial and content development for our portfolio of scholarly journals. We have 16. Um, Many of them are published in-house, and we have some partner journals as well. And I'm going to suggest that everyone check out um, the APS portfolio at journals.physiology.org. You will find an enormous number of resources related to for authors, for reviewers, which is why we're talking today. And also, if you're wondering why you should publish with APS or which journal is right for you, you'll find all kinds of good stuff there. But um, I'm also going to say that you and I share a fellow love of podcasting, um, and we oh, have yeah. a number of podcast channels um, for APS journals, and we just launched today, so uh, I'm here with breaking news. Uh, we just launched a new channel called the APS Publications Podcast, and we just launched our first episode today. It is on peer review and the future of publishing to celebrate peer review week. Uh, you can find the podcast at apspublicationspodcast.podbean.com. So therein's my shameless plugs, um, but I um, <laughs> I know we have a lot to discuss, so um, let's get started. Yeah, let's jump right into it. You have extensive experience in peer review and in scholarly publishing, but while you have been in the industry, what are some of the biggest scholarly publishing innovations or changes that you've seen up to this point? Great question to kickstart our conversation. And I don't mean to shock your listeners, but I started out in scientific publishing in, wait for it, 1999. And so it's been a while, right? And so I was thinking back all the way to that time point, and I was thinking, you know, really the three biggest things that I think are advancements, the biggest changes or innovations are literally moving from paper based peer review to web-based peer review. You know, back in the late 90s and the early 2000s, it was considered, you know, mind-blowing to think about using anything other than FedEx to send paper printed uh, manuscript copies to peer reviewers and then have them send back or fax back their comments. Can you imagine doing that today with how (laughs) everything moves at a breakneck pace? It just shocks me that we have come, you know, where we are now, where peer review can be completed in minutes to hours, not days to weeks. Although I think sometimes we still struggle with our time to first decision. Um, But I think that's in the thoughtful peer review frame, not the, you know, shipping things or faxing things frame. So that to me is sort of, you know, just mind blowing um, and how far we've come. 
And then I would say the move from print journals to online journals and how quickly publishers have been willing to drop print. And now it's considered completely normal to never have a, a print journal. And and that is just mind-blowing when you think about um, when people want a paper copy of a journal and you're thinking, paper? <laughs> Do we still have that? Do we still print things? Um, so that really, I think, is a phenomenal innovation. And then the third thing I'll say that really ties into that is uh, moving from articles appearing in a traditional issue to uh, being not just special issues or themed issues, but to being an article ahead of print or um, in press. And that that is that we have such things as the article accepted manuscript and the version of record and they're you know different and these different workflows and processes and how we're open now to reading content that is still in a proof stage and that was unheard of, you know, 20 years ago. So those to me are some of the innovations that really strike me. Yeah, I can remember being in uh, university and we, of course, all these universities still have these giant libraries still full of paper copies of all these journals that they get. And I, I can remember thinking, I will never touch one of these. I don't know. Right. <laughs> I'll never need to, I'll never need to physically grab a journal to go look for resources here. It's, it's far faster to just get it on my laptop now. But those are great points because they all throw a huge wrench into the peer review system. As you said before, all of these processes took quite a while. It gave reviewers plenty of time to look over a paper and be as thorough as they needed to be. But all of this speeding up means peer review gets a lot harder. As suddenly everyone's expecting these articles, sometimes within the week or something like that. So what are some of those challenges that you face on a day-to-day, week-to-week schedule when it comes to securing peer reviewers and getting peer review out as fast as possible? I agree. I mean, I think that it's just basically the difficulty of finding qualified peer reviewers, finding experts and finding experts who are not overwhelmed um, or inundated with requests to peer review. That really is the greatest challenge. I think that speaks to an opportunity. Um, So we could see it as a, a challenge or we could see it as an opportunity or a potential solution. And I think that in my mind, gets me to thinking about how to bring more reviewers into the pool of potential reviewers. So if the number of experts is finite, how do we get more experts? Um, And I think that we grow more experts. And how do we do that? We train more experts. And so I think that leads us to thinking of novel and sustainable ways to appreciate reviewers and novel and expandable ways, ways in which we can grow and change and expand depending on uh, what challenges the industry is facing to train reviewers. So maybe we could talk, dive into that a little bit. Oh, for sure. For sure. Are you seeing any of this happening in APS or? Well, yes, we are. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad we're we're probably seeing everyone put forward some kind of innovation, put some kind of new strategy together. But can you talk a little bit about what you guys are trying out? I can. I'd be happy to. I mean, I think there you hit upon it, right? There are certainly lots of societies are working in this direction. We are working to train early career researchers to adopt the role really of being an advisor to authors and a peer mentor, if you will, and to not micromanage the research so much as to offer helpful guidance on how to present it better. 
frankly, sometimes early career researchers are the harshest reviewers um, we have heard. So we have developed a training program. It's called the APS Certified Peer Reviewer Course, and it's really geared toward early career researchers. So they can go through all of the aspects of peer review. And at the end of it, really, it takes about two hours. It's not a huge lift in terms of time commitment. Um, and at the end, you get a certificate and you get tagged in the American Physiological Society peer review system as a certified APS peer reviewer. But I think folks would find that it is universal. So we really designed it to be universal across scholarly journals. The program was developed after a lot of trial and error um, and also some great work that was done in some individual journals within the APS portfolio. We had several journals like AJP Heart and Circulatory Physiology and AJP Regulatory, Integrative and Comparative Physiology. And these publications had developed journal-specific early career programs that kind of grew over time. And we borrowed a lot of that content and we grew it into our APS Publications Reviewer Training Certificate Program. So I would encourage everybody to check it out. If you go to the APS Journal's homepage, you'll see the information for reviewers and resources, and it's right there. I would say we are not alone, right? Lots of <laughs> scholarly societies are offering these similar programs. And so I would encourage your listeners to go to their home society and really, if they don't find it, reach out to your society uh, that's in your field and ask them what their resources are for reviewers. I think if they don't have them, they should probably start building them because proper training that's available to everyone, it really speaks to the efforts of many, many societies to diversify the peer reviewer pool and really create a pipeline of early career researchers who will eventually become expert peer reviewers. That's fantastic. There are so many resources for people to check out all over to become a great reviewer early in their career, mid-career, you don't need to wait to do this. We always need help finding peer reviewers and good peer reviewers. I know J&J &J discusses pretty often ideas like paid peer review or peer review as part of being part of a society or even part of your uh, university or something like that as to get more people. And the problem always comes up, oh, well, how are we going to make sure all of these reviews are good? Then what if someone just takes paid peer review and does as many as they can a year and then these resources are just the perfect opportunity for people to learn it the right way from publishers who have been doing this kind of work for years and years. One of the best ways to build up that pool of people, I think, is actually one of the most successful movements from the scholarly publishing community, especially in the past couple of years, which is a big push for diversity. And I was wondering, how have you seen these kind of programs come to fruition now, either within APS or any of the journals or just in the scholarly publishing community in general? Good question. And personally, I've seen over the years, I think in particular post-pandemic years, a real push amongst some early career researchers um, who are interested in jobs outside of traditional academia. So this is, um, I think, kind of a novel and interesting movement, right? So these are people who are typically postdocs. They're in the middle of their postdoctoral training, and they're kind of you know, looking around and thinking, I'm not sure if I want to be in the tenure track role. And so when I meet people at meetings and conferences and someone asks me, you know, would you be interested in talking to me about what you do and how you got into scholarly publishing? I'm always happy to grant an informational interview. There are a number of them that I've done over the years, um, often with female researchers. 
And I think it's an opportunity for societies and scholarly publishers to develop resources that speak to this area of interest. These are field-specific experts. So how do we bring them into our folds as scholarly societies? At APS, we're doing some work. It's really early days, but we're developing public-facing and kind of internal-facing editor resources. So our public-facing editor resources, our hope is in our career development resources at APS, and it will give researchers and physiology educators tools to understand what academic publishing is from the inside, but also to add to their own editorial toolbox. So it doesn't mean that they necessarily want to quit their jobs and say, you know what, I think I would like to be a publisher. It might mean that they want to become a blog writer. It might be that they want to get more involved in uh, their individual societies as editors or associate editors, or even, you know, editors in chief, editorial board members. We get questions all the time. How do I become an editorial board member? And I think, okay, well, we have to start at the beginning. First, we need to be a trained peer reviewer. Then we need to peer review. You need to develop a body of of manuscripts you've peer reviewed and that others have rated as a a quality peer review. And then you need to, you know, and and keep going, right? And keep building. Mm -hmm. What are those Mm -hmm. building blocks? We get asked this all the time. You know, we're thinking about pulling together all the various resources we have and kind of offering that toolbox, you know, more to come on that, but it will really build on um, some of the existing resources that are kind of scattered around APS in our physiologist magazine, previously published mentorship type articles, two of our journals, AJP Renal Physiology and AJP Lung Physiology have done some um, work to pair senior researchers with early career researchers as um, mentors and in fellow programs. And so our goal is to take all this great work that we've been doing for a while and kind of pull it all together. So um, certainly stay tuned for that. Um, I'll be sure to let you know once that's ready to roll out. Maybe you'll have me back to talk about it on your podcast. But um, (laughs) in the meantime, I can only help. (laughs) In the meantime, I think we, those of us who work in scientific publishing can just be ambassadors, right, to, um, to the community. That's fantastic. And when you're seeing all of these uh, resources be pulled together to put something together like this, as a woman in a prominent position yourself, just how glad are you to see that, that there are people like you that other women can reach out to and that, that might have previously not have wanted to kind of join in on these kinds of roles and stuff? How, how good does it feel to be like a leader in that role as well? Well, you hit it on the, the nail on the head. It feels great. It's really <laughs> exhilarating, to be honest. I have to say that it is an exciting time, I think, to see that just the the gender balance amongst editorial boards and, and editorial teams, right, in the sort of upper level leadership positions, the, just the sheer number of women who are editors-in-chief is just mind-blowing now from when I started. Um, and I would frequently walk into an editorial board meeting, and I was, you know, a staff member, uh, and I was the only woman in the room. And so it's it's fantastic. I think we have miles to go for sure um, for for true diversity, but I think we are making great, great strides. I also think that, you know, let me speak to the miles to go part for a moment. I think this is a challenge to see a variety of faces in science in general. 
And so I often think, well, how do we change that? And there are people who are much smarter than me who have spoken to this. And there are, at least in physiology, um, there's a group that I look to for guidance that Black in physiology, they have a fantastic Twitter feed. I should say they have a fantastic X, formerly known as Twitter feed. They are, I think they've inspired a movement really amongst different fields. So Black in cardiology, Black in endocrinology, you know, there are a number of them. And I think this is fantastic. And I often think, how do we get more people involved? And it's through K to 12 outreach. So to build a pipeline of diverse young people interested in science, we have to have a diverse pool of scientists who are willing to become authors and reviewers and editors. And how do we do that? We reach people early and we reach them young and we reach them when they're in school. And so the thing I would say, however, is that you don't have to be a scientist. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a working scientist. I came into publishing from a communications background, but... I think that anyone who loves science can be an ambassador for science. And so to build diversity, we need to say that we are ambassadors and we need to talk about what you do that's related to science, even if it's not doing science specifically. We're all scientists a little bit. And so we need more ambassadors. I really think you know science is amazing. Anybody can be a science ambassador. So that's where I would say I think we're going to really build our K-12 pipeline so we can have more people to tap into who are of a, a diverse pool. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'll just say in my immediate friend group, all of the girls, all of the wives or girlfriends or whatever, all of our better halves, we would say, uh, all scientists, all going into like nursing school and stuff, way smarter than us. <laughs> it's true for J&J's two founders as well. Jen and Julie put this stuff together. They spoke to me earlier about how it used to just be J&J was just a building full of files They're amazing. and stuff, <laughs> looking back at it. That is awesome. That's awesome. And of course, it'll always be a journey because the second we stop and say it's enough, I don't know if we, that's not the point. You kind of stop learning when you say, yeah, we're good enough now. I agree. You got to keep pushing the envelope. I agree. Uh, well, that's the end of all of my questions. And I'm going to use this moment to say if anything was missed or you want to add anything. You know what? I'm going to talk a moment about what we think is the most exciting development coming forward. So we talked about historical developments, but we didn't talk about the new launches of the world. And so and I wondered if you and I have the same answer. So what would you say are your favorite new mm. fancy shiny thing? Way to turn it back on me. <laughs> well, okay. When, when I'm scouring through news and stuff about publishing, I I have a few. So that's a little tough. The first and most obvious is open access. Since 2011, that has been a huge, I want to say, for a while, it was like a feature of scholarly publishing. And now it's kind of come into its own as more of a standard. I work with a couple of journals who only publish open access or have options to do open access. And a lot of universities in America are jumping into open access. And there are different forms all over the world. But it's been... 12 years now. And it went from, I think when I started working in scholarly publishing, where it was kind of on the ropes, if it was going to make it, we, if people were going to allow open access to now it firmly planting its foot in the door. And now we're going to see just how well-funded it can be and how much more of a use it gets. And I, I, the pandemic was a really good example of the use of open access, I think, because we needed some solutions fast and 
boy, what, in less than a year, we started developing vaccines in the U.S. So, yeah, we got to take advantage of how fast that this information can move. Uh, what were you thinking about the future of publishing? Well, I served you up a softball, but you really hit it out of the park with uh, <laughs> your OA. You're too kind. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm going to add to your OA, and I'm going to go a little less highbrow and say podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's a great point. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you and I have met um, through mm -hmm. our shared uh, interests in podcasts about in science and scientific articles. And I started um, producing a podcast for one of the journals I, I work on, AJP Hart and Cirque, back in 2011. It's hard to believe, but it's true. <laughs> and uh, back when Skype was my method of choice of, of contacting people, <laughs> does it even exist anymore? Well, now um, we just use Zoom. It's kind of <laughs> we're right? kind of sticking with it's it. New. <laughs> Zoom is the new Skype. Mm -hmm. um, the my microphone has changed over the years, um, but the what has not is the beauty of connecting an author with their scientific hero. This literally just happened yet again for like, you know, I don't know, the 300th time a couple of weeks ago where the first author we were interviewing it was an editor who had handled the paper, who had never met the first author. And we reached out to actually one of the reviewers who kindly agreed to review. And unbeknownst to me, he was the the person in the field, like the <laughs> one who discovered it all. And to see wow. this author's eyes light up like he was meeting Taylor Swift, <laughs> it was just <laughs> awesome. And I thought like, this is where collaborations are born. This is where people meet their heroes. This is where people meet each other and talk about how to move a field forward. And I think, you know, some discoveries are made. And I think this is kind of, you know, a genius way to allow authors to speak beyond the confines of the scientific article, which are pretty strict, right? And to give people mm -hmm. the background and to say, it's really amazing to hear people say, you know, data was a mistake. We thought it was a mistake and then we put it or we did this experiment and we shelved it for 20 years and then a new technique was developed and we took it off the shelf and we dusted it off and we were like, voila, this amazing thing happened. Or we found we were trying to run an experiment on this and we found this weird sex difference between the male and the female mouse. And so we were like, well, that's interesting. <laughs> huh, I didn't expect that to happen. <laughs> And I just love those discovery moments and that people get to discuss why this scientific article came to be. There's really no other format that really gets to the heart of that. And so it's it's been my privilege and pleasure to bring those stories to light for a number of years. And so that's my favorite new development. I'm an undercover techie. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's been amazing to see as well. I do a couple podcasts and video editing as well. And I got to tell you, scientists always have the craziest stories from outside of work as well. I didn't know they were such like- Be amazing sometimes. Uh, they're just like adrenaline junkies sometimes. I had no clue. But no, it, it really is amazing. It's I, I love to see scholarly publishing kind of, sometimes it's a little slow to the ball, I think, when it comes to adopting some new technologies Can in be. a way, but we always get there. <laughs> we, we're like the Can tortoise, be. we get there. I know, sometimes it's in fits and starts, but that's it keeps mm -hmm. us, that's what keeps us interested. Yes, yes. And I think things like having these podcasts and having these video interviews and getting people connected all the time just takes such good advantage of the technology that we have now. 
where, you know, what was it, 30 years ago? How were these scientists ever going to find each other except at an event once a year, maybe? And if they were too busy, that's it. Exactly. Right? We, we got exactly. so many more opportunities now. Makes our jobs fun. <laughs> it does. It does. And as you said, it has been fantastic doing this podcast with you, Kara. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing your expertise today. Thanks for having me, Wyatt. It was great to talk to you. Of course, of course. And if you want to find more J&J podcasts, then you can look up the J&J podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find them on our website at jjeditorial.com. Also follow us on X, formerly Twitter, at JJ Editorial, and like our pages on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thank you for listening and happy peer review week.